Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic Hits. I do want to talk about the undiagnosed cancer cases a little bit later on. Um, you know, oncologists and the Irish Cancer Society and many people are concerned about the amount of people who are not going for cervical, ch- cervical checks, breast screening, um, of course, because that has been paused, which I think is a huge mistake. And also, of course, men as well going for breast, uh, or not for breast screening, obviously for cancer screening as well, uh, prostate cancer included. Um, so we need a testicular cancer and all those other... So people are feeling things. You might feel a lump in your breast or something like that and you're thinking, oh, I shouldn't really go to a hospital. COVID-19 all that and I think you know the secondary effect of COVID-19 is going to be equally as bad if we all don't look after ourselves I have, I'm sure hospitals are thinking we've never seen such a healthy nation because A&E departments are half empty uh, people are uh, hospital wards I spoke to a nurse she said this hardly she knows a lot of people who are meant to come back for elective surgery and haven't been back uh, you know there's people out there with heart disease stroke all sorts of things and they're not you know they're getting those early signs and they're not going to doctors, not going to hospitals. Please, please look after yourselves, all right? Because non-COVID illnesses still exist and we need to look after ourselves. Otherwise, down the line, a year down the line, we're going to see a catastrophe. I'll talk about a bit more about that. But a new doll committee established to examine the COVID-19 crisis will hold its first meeting today and appoint a chairperson. Due to the physical distancing measures, uh, the inaugural hearing will take place in the doll chamber. And the special committee is made up of 19 TDs, uh, four each from Sinn Féin, uh, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, with one seat for each of the other parties and independent groups. Now, it is tasked with questioning the Taoiseach, ministers and officials about COVID-19, the, the pandemic, and the state's response to it. And near time that somebody is answerable for some of the decisions that have been made. And joining me on the line is the Sinn Féin uh, spokesperson for health, uh, Louise O'Reilly TD. Good afternoon to you, Louise. Good afternoon, Niall. And before we talk about the committee, can I just add my voice of support to what you were saying in relation to cancer care, that people should be coming forward. It is regrettable that the uh, that the screening programmes for uh, cervical check, bowel screening and breast check uh, were postponed, but we also need to catch up on what was missed. So there were 21,000... I'm horrified at these figures, Louise. I was looking at the yeah. figures last night in RT1 News. There were 21,000 samples sent for screening and cervical check April last year. 937 April this year. That's colossal. We had 13,000 mammograms April last year. How many did we have this year? None. 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 So there are women out there now, hopefully most of those are healthy women, but there are women out there who might find a lump or something they're a little bit concerned about and they have no way of early diagnosis or they feel there is no way of early diagnosis. Well, they diagnosis. feel they have. So in, in emergency cases, you should always contact your GP. Um, so the screening service is different to the, the service for people who are already symptomatic. But I think the important thing is if you were due to have your smear test around about this time and it was postponed because of COVID, don't postpone it till the next time it falls due. So don't wait two or three years make sure that you catch up. So we've been calling on the government to put in place an information campaign alongside a catch-up campaign so that that time is not lost and that we don't lose the value of the, of the screening service and equally that we don't get overwhelmed with mm-hmm. um, with a backlog or a build-up on a waiting list because well, that's the last thing we need. Well, that brings us to what we're talking about. The purpose of this committee, I suppose, is to address all these other issues because all of a sudden during COVID-19, it's not my imagination, everybody is saying it, 
we seem to have forgotten about everything else. I mean, we still have homelessness. We still have, you know, people with other illnesses, non-COVID related illnesses. We still have everything else going on in this country that we had domestic abuse, child abuse, uh, all sorts of things. The family law courts are closed, uh, you know, where people are forced to be together who maybe don't want to be together. So we still have all those other things going on. It's almost like we've neglected everything else. Now, I don't know whether I'm imagining that or whether you agree with that. And I think would it be the, the purpose of the committee to look at all the decisions that are being made around, the, say, the pausing of the, the, the breast screening, for example, and all these other things that we're, we're looking at at the moment? Well, that's it. And I think the purpose of the committee is obviously to, to scrutinise and examine those massive decisions that were made um, that were having huge implications uh, on, on people's lives. So, yes, we will be, uh, we will be um, scrutinising those decisions and the impact of them. And we'll also, um, you know, we'll have an eye to what happened. So we all saw what happened in the nursing homes. We all saw what happened in relation to testing and tracing and the problems that were created there. So we will be looking at those, but we will also be looking at how we restart the non-COVID-related care. So, you know, a lot of care has been paused. A lot of people got added to the bottom of waiting lists. So I suppose one of the questions and and, and I'd be interested to to hear maybe the views of your listeners on this is we're paying a lot of money we're paying 115 million euros a month minimum to private hospitals Uh, they're at about 40 to 50 percent occupancy at the moment so is there a case to be made for those being used as part of a catch-up program while we're still you know paying that phenomenal amount of money for them and again we won't know what the final bill is until this is all over I mean they were probably I mean unnecessary to be honest with you I know it was a decision that was made early on because we thought we were going to have a rush but when you look at say ICU uh, at the moment capacity is only about 30 or 40 percent which is great um, and you look at the hospitals for example I spoke to a nurse recently who said hospital wards she's never seen it in all her career are practically not empty but there's a lot of empty beds because people are not getting elective surgery or they're not coming back to hospital so maybe they were unnecessary so we need to get our money's worth out of them and you're absolutely yeah. right and people but, are not getting surgery and but that doesn't mean that they don't need it now. That's of course the point. They you know I mean oh, yes. the, the need hasn't gone away so people are cocooning they're maybe not moving around as much so if you're somebody that has uh, you know that's waiting on a hip replacement you're still in pain if you're somebody who's waiting on cataract surgery you're still worried about the implicate the long-term implications for your sight so I mean these are the questions that the committee needs to get to grips with and we need to be able to focus the mind of those who are dealing with it yes on managing COVID that has to be done and that's important okay, well, well let me get to that briefly because there is questions to be answered I mean last uh, two weeks ago Leo Varadkar was asked uh, by Ryan Turbidy was there any mistakes made by government and he said yes there has been and he said can you give me an example of one mistake you think you've made and he seemed completely lost to answer that question he knows damn well what the answer to that question is we all know now at this stage that the majority the vast majority of those whose lives have been lost or who are are ultimately at risk are elderly people generally in care homes that seems to be the case a a massive percentage over half Um, and we certainly dropped the ball early in the game where we basically as um, Mary Lou MacDonald said recently we used a sledgehammer to crack a nut in other words what we did was we locked everybody down we looked at every single situation every, every part of the community instead of focusing on that one part of the community which we knew from the very start were the most vulnerable and we didn't focus on it. Do you think we really made a huge mistake there? Well, I think, um, you know, there's a couple of things that jump out at me. We did an infection rate among our healthcare workers of over 25%. We still do. That's very worrying. So that would point to issues around PPE and around work practices and, and that. We also have an issue with our, with our care homes. Now, the government will say, well, sure, look, at that happened in every country. And just because it did, you know, as, as my mum was fond of saying, if, you're, if your friend put his, put his hand in the fire, would you do it as well? You know, that's not good enough. So we need to know 
why decisions were taken. Um, why wasn't it ordered earlier? I mean, because we knew about it from ja- late January. So yeah, why well, we wasn't it ordered? At, uh, yeah. yeah, we could look at other countries as well and see what was happening, you know, um, within the care homes and the residential settings. And I mean, one of the things that gets lost in this debate as well, Niall, is that, you know, it's not just nursing homes. It's all congregated of settings. Course, yeah. So it's, you know, it's direct provision. It's where people are forced to live side by side or they can't do self-isolation. So it's not just vulnerable groups um, in nursing homes. It's direct provision. It's centres for... Pr- residential temporary accommodation we have you know women and men and children living in temporary accommodation hotels and bed and breakfast are still there by the way yes Uh, they are and as as you you correctly point out homelessness hasn't gone away overcrowding might have made this worse you know so there's a lot of things that we need to examine and i think the the committee the the hope that i would have is that we get a chance to interrogate what went on, to ask the questions that people are asking us. Because, you know, we don't have a, a proper functioning doll at the moment for all sorts of reasons. We could be here all day debating it, but we just don't. So the committee is an opportunity for me as a constituency TD. I'm hearing every day of the week from people in Fingal. We're still, uh, we're, not, we're not open to the public, but we're still open via phone, email, Zoom and everything else. And we are inundated with queries from people. So I think it's, it's reasonable for us to put, as politicians and elected representatives, to put the concerns of the people that that we represent onto the public record and to try and seek some answers. So, for example, when the government say we were aiming to get 15,000 tests uh, done a day, we're aiming to do all of this and we're ramping up and we're doing all of that. Well, I think it's reasonable for me as an elected rep to say, well, now hang on a second, why have I got people coming on to me that are saying that they have, uh, that they're waiting three and four weeks for tests? Which is still the case, by the way. People are, I heard yesterday, people are still waiting three days for the results. Yeah, and yeah, that, and, that's and unacceptable now at this point. I mean, that was acceptable four weeks ago when you know, of course, we had a bit of a rush on it, and we didn't really know where we were going, and you know, it was new to everybody. Or five weeks ago, but certainly not now to be waiting three and four days for results. We should have the, the results within twenty four hours. But this is it, Niall, and you've also got to look at what happens after the swab is taken. So, I mean, taking the swab is the first step. You've got to get the test, you've got to get the result notified to the individual, and then you have to start the business of contact tracing. So then you have to go back, and this is where, you know, when the the World Health Organization says test, trace, and isolate, this is what they mean. You know, they mean do the test, do it quickly, and then contact the people who might have been in contact with the person if they get a positive result. So we're uh, we're not able to do that in real time we're not able to do that quick enough and that's going to be absolutely essential because but why, you know, why is the testing so slow Louise when we're looking at other countries for example who are testing and I, I'll mention America and not Donald Trump obviously but I'll mention America and they've done the most amount of tests in the world they've done eight and a half or nine million tests at this stage they're using different type of testing systems some of them which will do it in 15 minutes uh, some of them are, are better than others of course you know their accuracy rates mind you that all of them have a, a flaw whereby they, they can give false positives yeah. but I mean there's an Abbott system out there at the moment that is 85% successful it does it in five minutes so surely we could have those systems it's a machine you literally uh, take a little dot of blood like you do with um, you know if you're doing if you're taking your insulin test or whatever your diabetes test and we could have those in a care home for all staff going in we might not catch everybody but certainly it would help for all hospitals or care workers could do those daily you know you'll see for example when you see Donald Trump there and there's 20 people in the room every single one of those has been tested before they walked into that room in front of him so they do that in five minutes so why can't we use that type of testing? And these you know, are the questions that we need to start asking because those are the questions that I'm being asked. I have people contacting me. They say, look, I've, I've read this or I've seen this and we looked last, uh, I saw last night on, I think it was the BBC, a project in Liverpool whereby they're sending the test kits out into the community. They're training people how to use them. So they're training them over um, over Zoom or over whatever um, mm-hmm. platform they're using and they're training people to take their own tests and do their own tests. 
Um, because the key is testing. Like we we, really we all know the key is testing, you know, yes. and, and oh, everybody knows that. It's absolutely the key. But also, you know, getting the tests in a timely way. I mean, I, I, I use Mary Lou McDonald as an example. She waited 16 days for her results. I know. But the people she was in contact with may, waited more than three weeks to I be contact a, traced. I had and a friend no who waited a week, a week to get a test and then two and a half weeks to get the results. So I wish stage any value of, you know, and oh, he I, and was I positive. hope your friend is okay. He was but I, if, you know, if they, were, if they were positive, like the, any value you have in terms of contact tracing is gone. So, you know, there's, there's stuff that we can be doing, you know, and we have to be mindful of the fact that, you know, like the, the Dr. Tony Houlihan, um, Paul Reed, and all those people in the HSE, you know, they, they are doing their best. They're, it's not a perfect system and we're doing a little bit of learning okay. as we go. But I think if you're looking to other countries, you'd have to be asking, well, hang on a second, if we're repeating mistakes that were made ahead of us in other countries, we need to stop that. And if there's learning that we can get, just for, as an example, hairdressers in France are open. We know that chiropractors, acupuncturists, other kind of hands-on therapy, they're beginning to start in other countries. So we need to look and learn from them. I'm not saying we, we need to rush, but we need to learn. Okay, but that was the next question I was going to ask you. Well, is that part of the committee's, um, I suppose, uh, their task as well to look at, say, for example, our roadmap? which has been criticised by many leaders in the world, including yeah, the, uh, the President or Prime Minister of New Zealand, who said that our roadmap is taking too long. Even if we look at the roadmap set out by Boris Johnson and all his uh, flustering around yesterday, his roadmap uh, seems to be a lot quicker. Schools are going to be back in June. Um, you know, he's talking about the bars and restaurants open by the end of June. Uh, he wants to get the economy back up and running. He's encouraging people to get back out to work if they can. Are, is our roadmap taking too long? Are we just stretching this out too far? When you consider that I, I, my condolences to the family who lost their lives, but over the last four or five days, sure, our debt rate has been down below 20. Yes, but every single one of those, Nyland, you know, that is someone who's very, who's, who's loved abs- and, and abs- who's I'm, missed, I'm not saying that, Louise, but that's like... That I, I, either. This yeah. is a serious... It's a I know, serious I'm not, I'm not, no, I'm not you, saying you do, that, but no, people no, can make, see you that. You make a good point, though, because I think, you know, the one thing we have to know is that the virus doesn't carry a calendar around with it. It doesn't have a diary. So what we need to be doing is looking at what we can sustain. I think, you know, putting it down as a date, it'll happen on this day at this time. Like, what we need to be looking at what they're doing in other countries, looking internationally, seeing if they got something right and they were able to do it safely. We learn from that. You know, we don't have to keep trying to, to, to reinvent the wheel here. We can look abroad and we can see. And if mistakes were made, then we need to be, uh, we need to be able to say, right, they, they didn't get that right in, in France or they didn't get that right in Portugal. Let's learn from the mistake that they made. And I think that's an important, going to be an important part of the work of the committee is to broaden out that discussion. And, you know, the other thing that I have noticed about this, there's a lot of people out there with a lot of very practical ideas, but what they're finding is they can't get to a situation whereby they can get those ideas into the HSE so things like rapid tests and stuff like that I want to be able to ask the question if they're not doing those tests that they're using in other countries why if there is a good reason I'm willing to hear it if there's not well then we want to know that that's been looked at so there's a whole range of things that I think a a kind of dialogue that's been absent uh, from the public discourse you know in terms of being able to question in terms of being able to, to put ideas onto the record and in terms of being able to say well let's look abroad if they're doing something better in France or Portugal or New Zealand or somewhere let's learn from that and if they're making a mistake well then let's learn from that, but and, it, it, that is, uh, and finally is it a case that we really need to look at different plans here because everybody's talking about a vaccine and as I mentioned to Tara there a few minutes ago before we come in onto 
you there. There are some great scientists around the world who have also said there may never be a vaccine or it could take a long time. As it did with the flu, it took 10 years to get a vaccine mm-hmm. for the flu many, many years ago, back in World War II when it, we first established that we had a flu pandemic. So in re- real terms, we might not get a vaccine. So should we be looking at living with a virus, a virus which just like the flu and just like other viruses that we have out there that human beings are susceptible to, that sadly we have to protect ourselves and we need to get out there and protect ourselves and not become too complacent about it. So is there a case of also looking at a plan where whereby stop looking towards a vaccine. If a vaccine comes, great. But in the meantime, let's be testing the population for antibodies because the one good thing that we do know, and it seems to be definitive, is you can only catch it once. So That seems to be be the case. And I think, you you know, you make a good point on that, and you're right. I think what we need to be doing is looking at, you know, we we could hold out for a vaccine, right? But we can't continue the way we are indefinitely. Well, no, we can kiss or ask goodbye to the economy if that was the case, completely. You know what I mean? I mean, and and a whole range of things. It's not just the economy. You know, people are missing and their family. I'm missing my grandson. I haven't hugged him since February. Do you know, like we're on at that stage now where we just want, we want to be able to do that, but we want to know that it's safe. So if it is a case that we have to, that we have to, um, you know, that we have to wait for a vaccine, I think we could be waiting a long time. We don't have a time frame for that. So yes, we do need to figure out how we live alongside the virus. The other thing uh, I think we need to look very seriously at, like what practical steps can we take um, to ensure that we don't uh, pass the infection on to other people? or that we, we're not the source of doing it. So we need to look at, and I know that the NEFIT is considering it today, it's something I've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, we need to consider the wearing of non-medical masks in well, the they, When they said this morning, was it Leo, I think, or somebody said this morning that they're, uh, Simon Harris, yeah, sorry, they said this morning, they're not going to make this compulsory. Um, no, and, but and I think would you make it compulsory? People, I don't think there's any need to, if you talk to people about the benefits of it, and if you can bring people on board, I don't think there's any need to make it compulsory. If people can see there's a benefit, like if you go to, to, to other countries, you will see the wearing of masks. It's it's not unusual. People do it. And, you know, they've succeeded in some places in, you know, uh, ensuring that their flu season, instead of being three months like ours is, it, they can get it down to, uh, you know, just a month or a couple, uh, a month and a couple of weeks. So, you know, I mean, there's things that we can do that are practical things. You need to bring people along with you. You need to ensure that people are informed. And I don't think it would be helpful to say you have to do this. But I think if you can explain to people the value of doing it and if you can show them that there is a benefit, because you know what they say, my mask protects you your mask protects me if people get that sense that they can actually do something practical I think that's a very good a very good place for us to be and we're hoping that we'll have the space at the committee to have those kind of essential conversations Okay I'm just looking at some of the texts we Hi now just to correct you I work in a private nursing home just got a text from the HSC on my compulsory COVID test 11 days waiting and uh, that's a nursing home uh, thank God we're all okay I find it insulting to hear the HSC say three days so I mean this is amazing yeah. and somebody else says now could you ask Louise will there be a an unelected, will there be unelected people on the committee, i.e. those who were elected or not elected, I'm assuming he means in the last stall, uh, but not on this one, or elected in the last stall, but not on this one. That comes in from Paul Martin. There won't. Pa- there won't be, Paul. No, I was just reading that myself. All right, listen, thank you very much indeed, Thanks, Louise. Now, I appreciate you coming on the air. Uh, Louise O'Reilly, TD, and a Sinn Féin Health spokesperson talking about uh, this new establishment of the Dáil Committee, which starts today. And uh, it basically, look, it's a good thing. It's a good thing because at least the government will be open to questions by another group of people and hopefully they won't be all just yes people uh, and Louise doesn't sound like she is. Getting back to the cancer test screening uh, that we talked about earlier on and particularly when we talked about cervical cancer and breast cancer and those services being paused, a plan for resuming cancer screening services must be outlined urgently according to the Irish Cancer Society and on the line is Dr Robert O'Connor, Head of Research for the Irish Cancer Society. Good afternoon to you Robert, how are you? 
Good afternoon, I've got to be on the show again. Yeah, uh, Robert, I mean, I find this, I, I read an article the other day by an oncologist who was concerned about the amount or the lack of people coming for early diagnosis. I mean, it is quite concerning, and when we see in RT News last night that breast screening has been paused, down from, you know, t- t- 10 or 15,000 down to nothing this year, a cervical cancer from 23,000 down to 937. I mean, we have to be concerned about the after effects of COVID-19. Um, sure, and uh, I suppose in any epidemic situation, one has to be concerned about the direct cause, uh, the direct impact of the virus, as well as the secondary effects. I need to clarify uh, one thing and, and put a bit of distance between two. We're actually talking there about two different things. Screening is undertaken uh, on otherwise healthy individuals, and in any given normal week, about 11,000 um, otherwise healthy people will be brought for cervical screening, bowel screening or, or, or breast screening um, in the hope of uh, if there was a cancer or a pre-cancer there, identifying it early. Separately, the uh, health community is very concerned that people who have symptoms, so those are something showing up, we may get to talk about that uh, in a moment, what those symptoms might be, not presenting to GPs and not going forward. And I guess those people would be at elevated risk. Uh, not all of those will be cancers, but uh, it's very important that those people speak to a GP, um, get a, a consultation that might be over the phone, or they may need to go into the GP and then get referred into cancer services. And unlike other countries, um, because of the amazing work done by our healthcare workers, we have been able to maintain a healthcare system so those people will get treated. All right, so you're basically saying there are people at home probably who may have a continuous bad cough, who might be, maybe, I don't know, uh, there might be blood in their urine, uh, they might be uh, coughing blood or something, but they're afraid maybe to go to a doctor or go to a hospital because they feel that's not what I'm supposed to do at the moment because I don't have COVID-19 and that place, those I can't be taking up bed spaces or a doctor's time. I don't want to be wasting our time during this uh, terrible time and this pandemic. Exactly, and I think there, there are some additional things I think, and having spoken to family members and that, I know that there's a, a kind of a concern that, well, if I go to the doctor or if I go to the hospital, uh, maybe I'll pick up COVID illness and that as well. And, and we do need to respect um, this virus and, and the devastating impact it can have um, for many in our community. So I, I think there's a not wanting to trouble the health system perspective, as you mentioned. I think there's also a genuine fear, but I'd like to reassure your listeners that everything is being done out in the wider health system to ensure that that interaction is absolutely as safe as it can be. In many cases, GPs now um, will triage over the phone and there is an awful lot that can be done uh, over the phone. Uh, That might be a voice conversation. It may be a video uh, consultation. So you may not even need to physically get in to the GP and the GP will often be able to reassure that, um, you know, there isn't, uh, that this is something else that isn't, you know, per se cancer. And then within the hospitals, there mountains have been moved to make sure that patients are protected. Um, uh, private hospitals, which have been taken over and uh, uh, kind of leased by the health system now, um, they uh, treat non-COVID cases. Public hospitals have been treating COVID cases, which are more complicated. Well, they, but but, but, but can I ask you, Robert? Treated separately with separate entrances and, and all of those okay. other safety precautions. Yep. And, I, and I completely agree with everything you're saying. But can I ask, at the moment, there tends to be, and I, and I mentioned this to Tara earlier on when we were having a kind of lighthearted chat at the start of the show, that years ago, well, not years ago, it actually seems like years ago, months ago, um, you know, if you had a bit of a cough, you mentioned it to your co-workers in work 
or you'd send it to your family because, you, you know, you go, oh, jeez, I think I have something coming on there, a bit of a coughing. Mm-hmm. But people are almost afraid to cough. People are almost afraid to say they're ill because, you know, immediately, there seems to be almost like a stigma attached to it, you know, that others will be looking at you like you have leprosy or something or the plague or something like that. So people are almost afraid to say that they're ill with anything apart from COVID. And I haven't heard people talking about any other illness. It's like everything else has suddenly been cured, which I know it hasn't. Uh, and all we're talking about is COVID. Cancer kills 30% of the population who die, I assume. I think that's the figure, isn't it? Around 30% of the population who yeah. die in this country are from cancer. I mean, that is a third of the population who die in this country every year. 30,000 people, I think, die in this country every year, die of cancer. And it's our biggest killer. And yet, we're not hearing much about it over the last two months. It's almost like we've neglected it, forgotten about it. And early diagnosis is the key. And you're right, the after effects or the, the kind of second wave of this, maybe next year, could be people who didn't get diagnosed quickly enough. Absolutely. And I mean, just to put some numbers around that, close to 500 people um, in an average week will be diagnosed um, with a new cancer in, in our community um, here in Ireland. Those numbers will continue to happen in the background. They're completely independent of coronavirus. Uh, and obviously, there's a lot of media focus, and, and rightly so, on how we can um, prevent this infection, the impacts on it, the economic impacts, and so on. So it's all playing in our minds. But all of these other illnesses, cancer, uh, heart conditions, uh, etc., are all still happening at a rate in the background. And I would urge your listeners if they do have a health condition that they're worried about, just to make contact. And I suppose not to be afraid. I mean, it will be a a confidential conversation with their GP. As I indicated, in many cases, they won't even need to go uh, physically to their GP. There's really no such thing as a waiting room anymore because GPs literally bring people straight into their uh, offices and then straight back out so people wait uh, in their cars. So if anything, there's even more... Um, anonymousness in in that uh, uh, mm-hmm. in that interaction um, these days. So it is important, obviously, if people have symptoms of coronavirus, that they know and get that checked out, and uh, uh, with testing etc. in place now to be able to do that. But these other conditions are really important, and we need to see people being alert and attentive to themselves and to family members for those things that you mentioned. So you know, rapidly losing weight unintentionally night sweats, uh, a cough that has been going on for some time, particularly among people uh, who have been uh, or still are smokers, uh, maybe blood uh, coming unexpectedly from some uh, part of the body, particularly maybe in the waterworks or uh, abnormal bleeding for men or for women, maybe a significant change uh, in the skin in terms of uh, a mole or that. And those can all be things. In many cases, there can be banal explanations for them, but always best to get them checked out uh, and the system has capacity at the minute for people to be seen and, and to have those things followed up. All right, well, look, it is interesting and, and, and I am going to have a little bit of a chat more about it throughout the show as well. And, and I know we've spoken to people on the air and I had a woman on actually crying her eyes out here going back about four or five weeks ago that she's in the final phases of cancer and her treatment had been cancelled, uh, which I I just I don't understand why, because obviously obviously the, the hospitals were busy at the time. I, I'm not too sure why, but uh, a lot of elective it, surgery has been cancelled as well, which is quite quite concerning too, you know, during Yeah, it, that, it, that's not really a busy situation. And I guess, for clinicians, and, and I suppose we're, we're constantly learning more about this infection, but we do know that certain types of treatment um, increase the chances of a very poor outcome from an infection. 
cancer treatment, particularly chemotherapy, can wipe out the immune system for a period of time. Uh, and in someone um, who is um, at high risk of having their immune system knocked out, and if there's community infection, it's a very uh, difficult call between the impact of the treatment uh, and the high likelihood that if that person catches coronavirus, it will have very, very serious consequences. And clinicians have been trying, I suppose, to manage those consultations with patients and try and um, help them understand that under other circumstances, one wouldn't have to really consider that impact. But it is very serious. And I suppose we've been seeing some of our, our, our night nurses, etc., interacting with people in those situations. Those can be very serious and very rapid consequences um, if somebody's immune system is weakened uh, and that. And I suppose what, what, I, what I get coming out of that, though, is a communication challenge that people don't understand the rationale behind those decisions. And that's a big challenge. And communications is a real problem um, at the minute that people need to understand what's happening in their health system, why those changes are happening and how they're impacting their care. And I think there's a lot more that the health system needs to do in that, in that area. All right, well, look, if people want more information, by the way, or you are concerned, um, and obviously your GP is your first call, obviously, um, to talk to him about your symptoms, but you can contact the Irish Cancer Society. The free phone number there, by the way, is one 800 700 That's one 800 Thank you, uh, Dr. Robert O'Connor. And, I might yeah. just mention that, that that gives a full range of support and services. So certainly people can be put through to our oncology, your specialist cancer nurses, but also general entitlements or other concerns that people might have around uh, cancer and COVID uh, illness at the, at the minute. So it, it's a general service that's there seven days okay. a week. Okay, so that's 1-800-200-700. Dr. Robert O'Connor, thank you very much indeed. I appreciate you coming on the air. All right, um, now, after the break, by the way, I want to take some of your calls as well in relation to this. Let's clear the decks there. And uh, we want to hear your calls and, you know, how you're feeling at the moment, not about just generally about COVID-19, but, I mean, when I watched RT News last night and I saw those figures, and let me read them out to you again. I know Robert mentioned earlier on that these are not people with cancer, but these are healthy people who are going for screening. Now, when you're going for screening, obviously, you want to try and pick up early diagnosis. So if somebody has a lump or somebody has something, um, you want to pick it up very early because, of course, we all know the key to curing cancer is very early diagnosis. But last year, 21,000 samples were sent for screening in one month of April last year. This year, 937. Did we not learn anything, anything at all from the cervical, ca- uh, cervical cancer scandal that we had over the last three or four years? Have we learned nothing? It seems that we have learned nothing uh, because I cannot believe those figures have gone from 21,000 down to 937 in just one month. One month. And when it comes to mammograms, and again, these are healthy women who are going to have their breasts checked, as women are advised to do on a regular basis. Um, We've gone from 13,000 in one month last year, in April last year, to how many this year? None. None at all. Not one single check. Because breast check, their, their screening process, has been paused. Who made that decision that you would pause a vital service like breast check? Who made that decision? Because it's almost like, and I'm finding it every day now, nothing else in the world matters. Nothing matters anymore apart from COVID-19. We even find it here on the show difficult to talk about anything else apart from COVID-19. And even if it is something that's anything else apart from COVID-19, it comes back to COVID-19. There's a COVID-19 relationship in it. Why? Do people not get coughs and colds anymore? 
Are we not allowed to get a cough and a cold anymore? If somebody coughs now, we look at them like they're some sort of social pariah. People are afraid to even say they have a cold. So if they're afraid to say to their friends or their family or their work colleagues, I think I'm coming down with something. What chance have we got of them going to a doctor or a hospital? Because they feel they don't matter anymore. And I genuinely believe that. I believe that people think now that every other illness doesn't matter anymore. And if we look at it in the real terms, yes, COVID-19 is a virus that kills people and it is quite dangerous because it spreads very fast. We know that. But in the real terms of how many people die, so far in this country, sadly, nearly 1,500 people have lost their lives. Or actually, the figures are a bit higher than that. I'll get to lean to give you the figures in a second. Quite a substantial amount of people have lost their lives in this country due to COVID-19. How many people will lose their lives in this country due to everything else that's going on? People who are not being diagnosed with cancer. People who are not being diagnosed with heart disease. People who may have, may think they have a stroke coming on, who are not going to a hospital. 1,467, almost 1,500 as of yesterday. Thankfully, our debt rate is really low now. That's a great thing. Well, I mean, over the last three days, we haven't gone over 20. And one day, I think one day was 12, 14, I think it was, and 18, I think, the other day. So we're, our debt rate is really low. Our cases are really low. But in real terms, by the way, the cases are not probably as low as we think. There are thousands and thousands of people with COVID-19. We just don't test everybody. But the point is, the debt rate is low. Look at the people who are dying in this country of other illnesses. Every single day, 90 people die in this country, on average. 90 people. A third of those will die of cancer. You heard the figures Robert gave out there of people who are diagnosed. 500 people per week are diagnosed with cancer. But it's almost like it doesn't matter anymore because it's not COVID-19. Our hospitals are not overwhelmed. We've taken over the private hospitals. We've paid a huge amount of taxpayers' money to take over private hospitals. They're not overwhelmed. They never were over the last eight weeks. There's empty beds in hospitals. We need to look after people. I don't want a situation next year where we look back and we say, hmm, we kind of dropped the ball on that one, didn't we? We didn't care about anybody else apart from people with COVID-19. That's all we talked about in the news. People who were homeless didn't, didn't matter anymore. People who had cancer didn't really matter anymore. People who had the onset or they, were, they felt they were going to have a stroke or heart disease. Sure, that didn't matter anymore. Because all we talked about in the news and all we ever informed people about was COVID-19. We need to get breast screening open again. We need to get women back to get their smear tests. We need to get results back. We need to focus on everything else as well as COVID-19. I want to know, do you feel that we have neglected other health issues in this country? Had you had, did you have surgery that was due to happen, but it was cancelled? Hip replacement, knee replacements, all those sort of things which are valuable to people's lives. Because if your hips are, if you're in real bad pain, you're depressed. Let me know what you think. Maybe you've been in that situation. Maybe you've had pain. Maybe you've had surgery cancelled. Maybe you're having um, some sort of uh, something done in the hospital at the moment and it's not being done anymore because of COVID-19. Or maybe you're just at home for the last eight weeks. This week, we will be in lockdown if we go past this week longer than Spain and Italy. And yet we have so many. When you look at the debt rate in this country and the cases in this country, it's so much lower. And it's going to take us three months to get out of it. Already in Spain and Italy, they're talking about opening different things. They're doing it differently. Everywhere seems to be doing it differently. Uh, pity more people in the media haven't got the balls to say the same thing, boilers. 
Uh, it might quell the bloody paranoia, says Kevin Limerick. I have to agree. I, I, I understand people's fear. It's a virus. Uh, you know, and like many other viruses, can be quite dangerous, particularly those who are very vulnerable. And there's no doubt about it. This virus spreads very quickly because of the or not involved in this virus. If you've been watching the news, we've all become experts on what the word or not means, uh, which is the amount of people that we pass it on to. Uh, but in saying that, you know, we have a lot of other illnesses in this country that kill a lot more people. And we need to focus on those too because they've always been there and they always will be there. And hopefully this virus will disappear at some point. Um, but all those other illnesses will still be there. We, I mean, how many years have we had cancer for? Or, well, we've had cancer since time began. But how many years have we been able to diagnose it and we still don't have a cure? We'll probably never have a cure because there's so many different facets to it. But in saying that, let's not ignore it, that it's happening. A third of the population die in this country die of cancer. Uh, D, you're on Classic Kids. How you doing, Hello, my old flower. Hello, my little flower. <laughs> <laughs> Dee, how are you? I mean, Dee, you, thankfully, you're in remission. You are diagnosed, with, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, yeah. Uh, but you're in remission now. you got good news, which is great. But you still have your cancer appointments, and they were cancelled. And it was cancelled. It was um, supposed to be to, um, yesterday. Okay. Monday. And what was that? Just a checkup to make sure that you know, just a, a, another checkup to make sure you're still in remission, was it? Yeah, and now it's back to the second uh, of June. Okay, that's a good bit away. And when you're in your situation, every month, every week counts, I suppose, because you're quite anxious, I imagine. Uh, not now, now. To be, to be honest, uh, it's just uh, you know, I've got three young children. I can't talk to my kids about that anymore um, when they jump on me yeah and I said my mommy's booby okay so, so what about your kids when, when, when your breast was sore was it yeah it's okay. so sore okay and even after you've, you've got into remission it's still sore now is it yeah Okay, and obviously you wanted to get that appointment so you could talk to the doctors about that and how long that's going to take to you know go back to some level of normality. I suppose is what you really want to know. Yeah, I, I, I just want I, I just want to be in a big in a in in, in a space that I can say, okay, grand. And, and do you do you think nobody cares? Well, it's not that nobody cares. That that would be the wrong thing to say. Do you think there's no focus on these things anymore? Exactly my point. Um, your man was saying the the other night. Um, from the Irish Cancer Research, yes. Yeah, the can- uh, cancer research. Um, they don't care about people who've got cancer. And cancer is the biggest killer in the world. Well, I don't think it's that we don't care, but all our focus seems to be taken away from it. That's the point, isn't it, that's being made? Yeah, uh, probably that way. Well, well maybe, maybe as a cancer survivor, you would say that they don't care. Yeah, well, and you're entitled to your view of it. No, no, on my point of view, um, I don't think they care. Okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll stay there for a second, because I want to go to Anne as well. Uh, thanks for that. Anne, you're on Classic Kids. How are you doing, Anne? Hey, Niall. How's it going? Uh, and your son's x-ray appointments were cancelled. Yeah, yeah. So he has um, three uh, x-rays every three months on his hip. Okay. Because he has this, it's a bone disease, but it's like more, it's a condition where the, the hip bone is eroding. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. What's, so that, he what, has, what's that called? Is there a name? It's called Perthes. Okay. I never heard of it in my never life. Never heard And it now before. I know everything about it. Yeah. Okay. And, and what then, is it? Are his bones brittle or something, is it? No. Um, so they don't even know what causes it yet, um, or even if it's genetic, but um, it, um, 
it's hard to kind of diagnose at the start because he started with a limp and they put it off as kind of some other virus in the hip and then the limp got really bad and he couldn't walk and he would just sit down and then we'd have to carry him around and then he'd be walking again and not walking and eventually then we kind of like pushed for um, a referral and then he had um, went to a specialist and she diagnosed him straight away and what it is is like the blood supply into the, the femoral head so the little round bone in the hip yeah um, that makes the movement, you know, makes everything move around it, and um, that uh, the blood supply stops and the bone dies. Oh right, okay. Yeah, and the bone. And he must be in a lot. Of, he must be in a lot of pain, is he? Yeah, he's limping now again. You see, so oh, right. we, we were in hospital with him in December, and he had Botox injected into the the bone and the muscles around it to give him more movement because it stiffens up the movement, and if the movement stiffens up, the bone grows back, but it won't grow back straight. And what's what's so the what's the long term prognosis for that? I'm sorry, so the long term prognosis is very good. Okay. Um, um, for most of them, no, okay, well, they might need a hip replacement in their 40s or they okay. might not, you know. Okay. But anyways, yeah, he gets three monthly um, x-rays and his last x-ray, they were showing that um, he, he had a bad case but where the bone is nearly gone. Um, and, you know, he's walking fine. He's a little trooper. He only just turned four, so he's always trying to keep up with his brother. And does he, un- and does he understand what he's going through at four? He just thinks he's sore, well, I suppose. When yeah. he tells you his knee is sore, that means it's his hip, because the pain refers down to the knee. Of so course, yeah. So when a sore knee, it's actually the hip. And um, so he needs regular physiotherapy um, and um, uh, swimming, all these different things. Um, but his the x-rays are most important because they can spot if it's going wrong, if it's if it's going back wrong, you know, um, and if they need to move on it. So if they need to act on it, then they can do these. There's about five different surgeries they can do in it to help the bone grow back in a round shape, like an egg in an egg cup, okay. rather than coming over it. Yeah. Okay, and, and just very good, because I'm conscious I have to go into the news no now. Worries, but, but, yeah. but in saying that, did you get a letter, a phone call, or what was We it? got a letter back in March just saying his appointment is cancelled for April, so he's limping now again, and we kind of carry him regularly if he gets tired. We know when his leg is oh acting up, he'll trump up on his dad's shoulders, or yeah. we kept an old buggy belonged to him, so we might put him in a buggy if it gets bad. But they're all cancelled now, so we... We have no idea when they're coming back again and when he goes back because he's missed these appointments, it could be at a, a worst stage, you know, that they're missing action in the bone. And of course, the x-rays are just for diagnosis, not for treatment. Obviously, he'll have to go back again then for treatment, obviously, as yeah, well, if yeah, he needs more Botox. Yeah, the x-rays tell them if they need to act. Like they said, the next x-ray, if the bone isn't growing uh, the way they want it to go, they'll do surgery straight away. So that was three okay, months ago. Okay. That's that's absolutely shocking. And, and yeah, do you, so I hope they get him. Yeah, do you, do you think during this COVID, you know, other things are being neglected? Yeah, I do. I mean, you know, there's there's no appointments coming out for anything. You know, I've one child who needs his glasses changed, and he's he's literally walking into doors. Like, right. Well, I, I actually went I, I went to Specsavers the other day. I got glasses in Specsavers the other day. So, um, oh, yeah, you can are make they, an appointment. Are they, are they opened back because we yeah. are ringing Crowley's in Cork, which has been fantastic for us, and they sent yeah. us out a free part and everything just to, to help us through. Okay. Well, I I rang for anybody interested. I rang Specsavers, and initially they said to me it was only for emergencies, but I believe as and from the day before, or was it last Thursday, they were allowed to open Excellent back up again. Thing. Yeah. That's yeah. So they, they but it's a kind of a, they're by appointment, obviously. But they, oh yeah, yeah. okay. Because right. see, yeah, I say he needs an upgrade in the other list. Yeah, collecting me new glasses. If anybody's seen my video today, you'll see me new glasses. I mean, I look quite handsome actually. I have to say. Oh, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, look, I hope that gets sorted out for you. It's a no shocking worries. situation. Thanks okay. All right. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Anne. Well, I have an interesting text there. I want to read it out. Hi, now. You were looking for hospital cases that have been delayed. I have been on a list for surgery, urgent surgery, uh, to replace my aortic root due to the uh, an aneurysm and valve replacement since November. 
I was told in November that it would be done within three months. I've called the Surgeon Secretary several times. I'm still waiting to hear when it will be. My planned angiogram in March was postponed. No new date. Uh, the reason for the replacement is that I have Marfan syndrome uh, and my aortic root has been increased in size to the point that it could uh, dissect or rupture. Uh, we are living 25 miles from Galway City and surgery will be in Dublin. But if it ruptures, I may not make it to Galway. Regards, Fiona. Fiona, good afternoon to you. Hi, Niall. How are you? Uh, interesting text and exactly what I'm talking <laughs> about today. Uh, and you're living on the edge, I'm sure, on your nerves apart from anything else. Uh, yes. and, and I, gosh, I hope that doesn't happen to you. And by the way, how does that manifest itself on a daily basis? I mean, are you in any pain or? No, I'm not. And this is this is the issue is because I've had my I was diagnosed 36 years ago with Marfan's when I was 12. And um, part of the condition of it is that you have an enlarged aortic root. And what's happened over the last 36 years, it's been stable at a certain um, diameter. Yeah. But the last 12 months after my father died, things took its toll on my health and everything else. But um, the last 12 months, it's increased to the point where they need to sort out surgery. Or it could, so ru- or it could it, rupture, yeah. Or it could rupture. So basically, it was stable at 4.2, 4.4 centimetres for 36 years, and it went up to 4.9 centimetres. Um, now, the average aortic root is about 3.3, 3.5, okay. so it's already enlarged anyway. Um, so when I went to see my specialist then in uh, September, we, I had to organise to get my, a private CT scan um, because I couldn't get me seen in time to get the, the operation sorted and then he told me in November that um, it'll be done within three months. Okay, so they, so they obviously um, believe that you need you really need this because, exactly. because you're, I mean, it's quite a critical situation. I mean, you, you could be out yeah. the gap at any stage, you know, yeah. if that goes. Exactly. Like, for him to say that it needs to be done within three months, there obviously is an emergency in it. Of course. So, come Christmas, he did say to me, the chances are it probably won't happen before Christmas. I understand that. They don't want to kind of have hospitals fall um, over, the, over the Christmas period. So come January time, I was kind of wondering when this phone call was coming. I have to have um, an angiogram first yep. just to check all the, yep, all the other valves and everything else. And um, basically, I heard nothing. Got my angiogram through for then for March. That was cancelled, obviously, because of the COVID took off then spoke to the secretary and she just said look it could be months yeah so i phoned her again two weeks ago and she said that my surgeon basically works out of crumlin and works out of the matter hospital um and crumlin has said that they don't want him working anywhere else other than crumlin so my surgeon can't come to the matter now to do my surgery i, I don't know when my surgery is going to be so you're living on a knife edge so, so to speak. basically every day i take my medication i keep fit and healthy as much as I can do but obviously every day I'm just worried I'm not in pain and that is the problem is because I didn't know that my heart was or my aortic root was enlarging at the time because I had no chest pains I had I had no symptoms just to, to, to warn me that this is what's happening so basically if I get stabbing chest pains and back pains now I have to hope that I can get to the hospital before this ruptures or, or dissects and you live so far away from Galway Hospital, that could be quite a dangerous situation. Yeah, I live 25 miles away from Galway, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, so even just to get into there would kind of... 
yeah. be trauma, traumatic. I know. And do, do you find, I mean, I, I know I went on a bit of a rant earlier on, but I, I just find that everything else doesn't seem to matter anymore. It doesn't. It doesn't. Even phoning, even phoning my GP, like my, my GPs are great. Um, and I had my blood pressure checked there back in February time and it was low, which is the whole point is that me on, on medication to keep my blood pressure low. Um, I, because of the extra delay, I wanted to go and see them to make sure that it was still low. And she just said it was fine back in February. So okay. just everything is COVID related and it's very, very frustrating for somebody. But not just for me, for my family and for my friends as well. Yeah, because you know, they're worried about you. Like, of course they are. Yeah, I'm like worried every- about you and I don't even know you. <laughs> and like everybody's kind of like, you know, have you had any word? And I'm like, no, yeah. I haven't. There's been no correspondence whatsoever. The first thing I need to have is my angiogram because they can't do the surgery without the angiogram. Yeah, because they need, and, a, they need a, I hate to use the word roadmap, but they need a roadmap of what exactly. the problem is and be able to see exactly. it. Yes, of course. Yeah. But it's very, very frustrating for everybody concerned. Okay. I understand that this thing has taken over and I understand people have been but very, very bad, ill. I, know, I don't understand because I, the point is you're just as important as somebody who happens well, to be yeah. positive with COVID-19. You're just as important. Yeah. If not, actually, you're more important because the likes of your illnesses will be around mm. with us forever because those types of illnesses are common in society and people die of them, sadly. So, yeah. I mean, you know, we have to make sure we look after everybody and not just neglect people and just focus on one thing. That sadly exactly. is taking lives. But if we look at the last few days, a limited number of lives. You know what I mean? It seems over the last few days, certainly. Yeah, and, that, and that's what's really frustrating as well, is because I know that I'll need intensive care bed for at yeah. least 24 hours, if not 48 hours post-surgery. And to hear that all along there's been at least 20, 30... Well, they're only at 30, 30% capacity at the moment. Yeah. You know so I mean? even that, like that... And I've been hospital within seven days, for seven to ten days. Yes, obviously there could be complications, so it could be longer. But it'll be seven to ten days. They could get me in and out. So, but there's more they, free beds in hospitals and ICU beds now than there's ever been before. Yeah. And and there's no reason why they should be cancelling, you know, the likes of your surgery. Listen, Fiona, exactly. I wish you, I wish you well, and I hope you get that sorted out. All right. Thank That's, you very much. So all right. Do I. All <laughs> right. Then. Time. Stay Bye-bye. safe. All right. Okay. I also want to go to Amanda. Before I go to Amanda, let me just read this out. Hi, now, brilliant show. By the way, I don't want to go on the air as it's about uh, my brilliant sister. She found a lump on her breast on the 27th of March. She went to the GP, who gave her a letter to go for a mammogram. She rang that day and was told they were not taking appointments and to ring back on Monday. She rang them and was given the runner for three weeks. I just couldn't believe it. She went back to her GP again who wrote a letter and emailed it to them herself and uh, my sister was called for a mammogram. Unfortunately, she was told uh, that she has breast cancer. Gosh, I'm sorry to hear that. Can you believe she was refused an appointment in the first place? In fairness, they're going to have to look after her now, uh, but I cannot believe that there is not one journalist questioning Tony Houlihan or Holan, should I say, about the complete shutdown of all health services uh, for such a long period of time and about the long-term effects that this will have on citizens of this country for some time to come. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I don't know why these people seem to be above question. Uh, and, and thankfully, by the way, they're setting up this Oireachtas Committee, which might question them. But it just seems that everybody is just doing what we're told, and I understand that we're being asked to do what we're told uh, for good reason. But in saying that, nobody is questioning anything. When we're not questioning the fact that people are not going for early diagnosis of cancer. We're not questioning the fact that surgeries have been cancelled. When we have, it seems, the most amount of empty beds and empty ICU beds in the country that we've ever had. Let me go to Amanda. Amanda, you're on Classic Kids. How are you doing, Amanda? Amanda, you there? Oh, I seem to have lost Amanda there for some reason. I'll try and get back to her in a second if I can. Um, some of the text coming in, by the way, and somebody else says, no, well said. Uh, it's the first time on radio anybody's mentioned it. 
Uh, let me see. Hi, Nal. Uh, your aunt, as you call it, uh, hopefully made somebody listen and maybe uh, something might actually get done. Uh, very well said and a broadcast rant in my opinion, Nile. And uh, that clown that thinks that your rant wasn't essential for the lives of people by saving them, well, uh, what can I say? I'll say this to that clown that hasn't got the balls to face Nile, get a life. And that comes in from Adrian. I'm sorry, I'll go back to Amanda again. Sorry, Amanda. Hi, Nile. How are you doing? Amanda, your six weeks post-operation check has been cancelled. What, what operation did you have? I had a vargus vein removed from my left eye. Okay. And um, how I are you? I had no symptoms at first. Uh, the reason they knew it was there was because in June last year, I ended up in hospital with cellulitis, septus, and then I picked up a viral infection. Right. I was in for the whole month. Then they, they had a, a vargus surgeon come along because they realised there was discoloration to my leg and he said there's a problem with the vein in the leg so I went for a scan in it yeah problem came up I just had the operation done before the shutdown it was the end of February and then I got an appointment for my six week checkup. two days later I got a text message not even a phone call a text message to say that my appointment was cancelled Oh, gosh. They didn't have the decency to even ring me. They just sent me a text message that your appointment cancelled. And did you try to contact them then to find out why? Um, no, they didn't ring. Say, um, and then, thankfully, the Bargsvain surgeon, he rang me on the day. But there's only so much you can say over the phone. Yeah. He can't exactly look at my leg. No, he can't diagnose really. No, no. You know. Because he told me there's a percentage of chance I could get it again because he said he was there since I was born. He yeah. was 23. So right. it can happen again. You know. Um, Are you in much pain? No, I'm not in pain. It's Good. just, I, know, I didn't even know I had it in the first place. Okay. Um, it was because I picked up the cellulitis. That was picked up. Yeah. It wasn't because of the cellulitis. It was just, it just showed it up. Well look, um, well, look, I hope you get your appointment and I hope they get to see you because that's it's just shocking. I'm looking at the amount of texts of people coming in uh, saying that their appointments were all cancelled, mainly them for very serious things, some not so serious. Another person says, uh, um, we see, I have a camper van at home and I should be able to use it. Uh, don't be near nobody. This is a joke of a lockdown. Well, I understand the point that you're making. Yeah, you're probably no, uh, no danger to anybody else in your camper van, but of course the rules are the rules at the moment. And another person says, no, I think uh, things might be starting up. I'm getting a bus tomorrow evening to go away for an invasive radiology procedure on Thursday uh, that was meant to be done the first week of January. That comes in from Inga. Uh, and we say, when I go to Paddy, Paddy, you're on Classic Hits. How are you doing, Paddy? Hi, Niall. How are you doing there? No, no I just, uh, I'm, <laughs> I totally agree with everything you're saying there concerning uh, the, the hospital situation, but Whilst uh, a lot of these people have their have their tests and that cancelled, I'm just of the opinion that I mean, and reading like everybody else and listening like everybody else was, we have 600 consultants, some uh, private consultants operating within this country, uh, and thankfully we do have them. They're very privileged men. They're paid top dollar. But at the moment, I'm sure you're aware that only something like uh, I think it was 180 of them signed up to the HSC agreement with the uh, the hospitals and all that. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering, you know, a lot of these guys going and maybe getting their tests and things like that done. What, what is the point if, if there is no consultants operating within these... Uh, within the private this, hospitals. This system, because yeah. they said the reason they can't, because I've list, I was listening to a, 
So a couple of them on prime time and things like that, and they were saying they'd no problem doing things for nothing and all that, which I find very, very. Uh, oh, do you believe that at the time? <laughs> do you believe but, that? Uh, absolutely not, Noel. But my yeah. point being is that I'm just wondering, you know, if these guys were available, and it's supposed to be all, you know. All, all shoulders to the wheel in this situation. But these guys, I mean, like uh, 420 of them, so have opted out of the uh, the HSC uh, uh, the, the HSE situation because uh, I, I, I think they're, they're throwing their toys out, if you know what I'm saying, out of the pram because, you know, they, they call the shots, let's face it, right along. And now all of a sudden, uh, the, the private hospitals have been taken over and uh, the majority of the consultants have backed out. And I'm just wondering what the, uh, you know, realistically, People going, having tests and things like that. You know, you've heard about, I mean, a, a simple little example. I mean, you know, I had a melanoma going back 10 years ago. It's not serious. It was blah, blah, blah. Had it done and all that jazz. Uh, the, uh, the, the guy I went to see, um, I can go and see him, uh, which I do occasionally, maybe three, four years. When I go and see him, uh, it's a 200 euro a visit. Yeah. But because I leave it for two, two years instead of one year, it's 200 if I go every year, but it's 300 if I go every two years. Right, okay. Now, my point being is that, I mean, uh, with all these, uh, all, all the private hospitals in the HSE system, surely a lot of all this, you know, this surgery that's put off for sort of... A, col- a colossal that. amount, by the, by the looks of the texts that are coming in at the moment, a colossal amount of surgery has been put off. Yeah, I'm just, but, but I mean, if, if you check up on it, I'm, I, I know I'm, I'm right, because it was, I think it's 400 and of these uh, consultants have decided to opt out because uh, they, they, they're not in agreement. Well, I, obviously, it's the few bob they're getting or whatever it is, but, um, but like yourself, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think an average of 85, 90 people die every day, uh, sadly, within this country. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, with the COVID-19 situation, just... How many people? No, not that I, I, you know, I, I feel like everybody else terribly sad about everybody that died. But mm-hmm. I'd love to know how many people at the moment are actually, and I'm sure they have records of all that. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I find it quite shocking that I mean, again, I want to reiterate that you know my condolences to all the people yeah, who died from COVID nineteen, and, and nobody wants to see anybody die. Yeah. Uh, but we have to. There's, there's a balance in life too. There's a trade off in life that we have to look after people, and we have a responsibility to our citizens who have heart disease, who have totally strokes, agree. who have cancer who have all those other things, to prioritise them as well. Because really, in the big scheme of things, more people are going to die of all those other things than COVID-19. That's a fact. Yeah, yeah. And anybody who thinks that's not a fact, that's, I mean, we should be looking at the science behind all this. I mean, yeah, yeah. We, in life, and I've talked about, I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day, in, in life generally, there's trade-offs. For example, you know, 170 people die on the roads every year. We could, if we reduce the speed limit from 80 kilometres down to five kilometres an hour, nobody would ever die on the road. But we would never get anything done and nobody would get anywhere. There would be no deliveries. So the trade-off is we accept that people die. And, And this is a really hard pill to swallow that we have to accept that in life and in the world, people die. If we can prevent that in a logical way, absolutely, we should always do it. But what we're doing at the moment is prioritising COVID-19, which I understand, but we're neglecting everything else. But I think I, I think you've made. I mean, really, I was listening to the, the as I do the, listen to the show, and I just it's amazing. You've made some very good points. I mean, like I, I, I feel so sorry for. It. It's not only that. I feel so sorry for you know elderly people, and thankfully, you know, I'm not in a situation where I have anybody mm-hmm. connected with me in that situation. But I mean, I feel so sorry for these people that are uh, that that are sort of dying. I don't know whether you were watching Clareborn last night. I mean, it was. It yep. was heart rendering some of the stuff that came out about, um, you know, um, they had this nurse on that was talking in terms of, uh, you know, and I wouldn't say she was a nurse, I'd say she was a carer, that they couldn't go in and see this person. That's awful, isn't it? On their own for three days. I mean, I, imagine I spending the last week of your life. Society we're, we're, we're going to breed out of this. I mean, like, it's, uh, 
There's something very in, inhumane, and I said this going back weeks ago, I mean, but but it is inhumane. Sorry, Paddy, for interrupting you. There's something very inhumane about allowing somebody 80 or 90 years of age who spent their whole life with their family and allowing them to die miserable on their own. There's something very inhumane about that, totally, and, and totally. I don't, I'm not comfortable with it at all. No, personally, I'm not as well. And I mean, I must say, you know, I think, uh, and I think, in all fairness to you, I mean, you know, I'm listening to your show regularly, and I quite enjoy it. I mean, like, I think what you do is you highlight these issues, which... You know, it's very important. I mean, I'd love that. I mean, I was listening again to Clareborne last night. I mean, one of the things that really pees me off concerning, uh, you know, the likes of that is, uh, whilst there was a, there was a senior, uh, she, she was a doctor, and she was quite a young lady, and I mean, like, uh, she was on. And realistically, she was given a political answer to all the questions that were being asked. And it really annoyed me. There was nothing... Nothing tangible came back. Like all you heard was, you know, we're we're we're, we're all just really finding out about this. And we're, well, they've they've been finding out about this for the last four or five months. And realistically, I'd like to think that we you know, know the, we the know now. taken is is not totally totally good. Absolutely. Anyway. I mean, look, this idea that we're learning, we're learning. How long do we have to learn for? We have every country in the world with the same situation. We have data from all over the world, particularly big countries like America, who have 340 million people. So there's lots of data there at the moment. Yeah, and yet we're not looking at the scientific data. We're just making this up as we go along. I'll leave you with a last point, Niall. It's just now a little bit. This is me just being uh, putting my, my stupidity hat on. But I've never seen so many professors come out of the woodwork in all my bloody lifetime. Honestly, God, um, I never realised we had so many. But, you know, we were looking for consultants and professors. And I think... But, uh, but do you know, but, but Paddy, can I just say one thing to you in relation to all the consultants and the professors that we're seeing, say, on RTE, for example, we're only allowing the ones to speak who have the same opinion. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. There's lots of I've I've watched different professors, immunologists, uh, epidemiologists from around the world in different countries, very eminent ones who have completely different views, but they're not allowed on the media. No, they're not. No, they're not. That's why I think that's why they probably uh, they, they limited you, you you to your appearances on uh, on on television. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been invited onto the Tonight Show about the COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but just, just, they're afraid of what I might say. That's the problem. No, no, no. But what you, you what, what you're saying is what people <laughs> what, what what people like to hear. It's uh, it's called it's called a little bit of that truth, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I think we everybody is entitled to be questioned, including Simon Harris, uh, Leo Varadkar. By the way, I did put up a tweet up because people have often asked me. And I just want to mention this very briefly before we go into the break. People have asked me why Simon Harris um, hasn't been on the show. And uh, basically, we emailed Simon Harris's office on March the 20th. We've been emailing them ever since, um, and they have replied to us. At one stage, they even asked us what questions we would like to ask Mr. Harris when he was on the air. So we did make up, uh, we did do a few questions. We sent them some questions to me, Lena. Um, uh, we got tired of waiting, and we told them we were tired of waiting, and they promised us then the following week. This has gone back three weeks ago. We still didn't get to see Simon Harris. So um, I decided to take to Twitter. And I don't know whether people say it, but basically I put up the whole thing on Twitter that we had been on to Simon Harris on numerous occasions, two months. Because we're not RTE, of course, we don't matter too much, I suppose. Uh, and really, he probably wouldn't be able to get the easy ride that he might get. Uh, because, um, by the way, I think Simon Harris is a nice guy. I think he works extremely hard. And um, whether he's making all the right decisions, decisions or not is open to question and everybody's open to question that. But basically, I, I told him and I'm going to uh, I'm reading verbatim. I know it's daytime radio. I told him to shove his interview up his hole. Um, <laughs> I 
I'd go with that one. <laughs> Listen, I, I've been honestly true. I don't think, with all due respects, you'll only get you, you, you'll only get the scripted verse off Simon and okay. you know all these guys. And I, I, I'd, I'd love to think, but I mean, uh, I mean, I agree with some of the stuff they have to do. I know they're in difficult situation as political leaders and as leaders of the HSC and Tony Hoolan as a spokesperson, as a medical officer, and everything else. I understand they're in difficult situation, and but you know, there some things that are done are very good. Other things, I think they're making massive mistakes. But but again, we're not going to find that out because they won't I, they won't I, answer I any just, questions. I, I just leave you with this. I think there's what on that committee. I was listening again on the, to Tonight Show or something. And one of these, um, one of these uh, anoraks, these uh, political anoraks that likes to listen to all this crap, as my darling wife will allude to. Right, but anyway, uh, I mean, listening to to, to this type of there's 37 or something on this committee that's involved. And I'm just wondering, have you ever sat around a table with 37? Have you ever sat around a table with 10 people and tried to get... This is the Oireachtas Committee, is it? Yeah, the Oireachtas Committee. Oh, but there's 19 TDs, yeah. So I just find that... Wow. Anyway, mm. I wish them yeah. well. Yeah, and so, I, but the problem is they're all going to be singing from the same hymn sheet because anybody, any poli- a political person that I've spoken to, they're afraid, actually with the exception of Mary Lou, who was quite honest with me last week and said she suggested that our quote was that we're using a sledgehammer to crack a nut uh, in relation to Garda Shea and the way they were dealing with people. But uh, So she, she's not afraid to, to voice her opinion. But generally speaking, I find that most of these po- uh, political people I've spoken to over the last three or four weeks, they're just basically towing the government line. They're not willing to question anything because they're afraid to. I don't know why. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi award winning Niall Boylan Show. Classic hits.